Um, good afternoon. Welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Chris Dill, and I'll be presiding today. To my right is Judge Hunter Merck, and to my left is Judge Julie Flood. And I'd like to acknowledge Eddie Sanders, who's our clerk today, and Richard Rimelard, who is our marshal. We have, I believe, two cases on the calendar, and the first one, I believe, is State v. Um, Speaks. Is that correct? Yes. So we will hear from the appellant. Let me know if you want to reserve any time and watch the clock, but I'll kind of um, keep time up here, too, in case we start firing questions at the end of your time. We'll Thank you, Your Honor. I, generous about I informed Mr. Sanders before we started that I wanted to reserve three minutes. Three minutes. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you. May it please the court. I'm Stanley Hammer of the Guilford County Bar, and I hear, appear today on behalf of uh, the defendant appellant, Ronald Speaks, who stands convicted of a charge of felon in possession of a firearm and um, conviction of having a habitual felon status. Um, today, Your Honors, I would like to address the first issue in our brief concerning justification. I'm certainly uh, prepared to answer any questions you have on the other issues as well, and we'll try to address the other issues if time permits. Your Honors, in 2020, our Supreme Court affirmed this court's decision in State versus Mercer and recognized that a defendant who is charged as a felon in possession can, can rely on an affirmative defense of justification if the facts and the circumstances so warrant. Or put another way, what the court held was that a jury could determine whether a defendant charged with felon in possession was justified in his possession of the weapon. Ultimately, whether a felon in possession is entitled to the justification defense is a question for the jury. There's a threshold question, of course, for the court if whether the evidence is sufficient to go to the jury. And we look at the light most favorable to the defendant, I assume. Exactly. So you exactly. Look at, light, look most at light most favorable to the defendant. So when we look at the Mercer elements, as I'll call them in this case, I think it's clear that Mr. Speaks has satisfied the test. I work under the assumption that the court is familiar with the facts, but I'll be glad to uh, go into any of that if you wish. I, I don't usually like, like to ask too much about the facts, but here I'm trying to figure out where defendant meets his burden of production in terms of going outside the house with the gun. Thank you. I, I'm confused a little bit on, is the record really unclear about the timeline, or is there somewhere you can point me to that shows something more about this timeline? You know, you, you quote this little bit on page 11 of your brief, so I see, so I went. But then you, you talk about the rest of the facts, and it's not really showing this instantaneous action. So can you talk me through that a little bit of between when Ricks leaves the, or Mr. Lewis leaves the, the house after Miss Tate, and then um, defendant gets the gun and goes outside, what we're kind of talking about in terms of timeline and where I get there in the record? The, the timeline, as I see it in the record, it's not clear in the transcript. However, Your Honor, in the, um, in the body cam 
that was submitted as an exhibit, and I believe I referred to some of the, um, the time stamps on the body cam. Uh, it looks to me as if um, Rick, as he were, walked out of the house, went out of the house right after Angela, or after Angela. My client went out right after that, and what you can see in the body cam is Rick walking out of the house, my client, Mr. Speaks, walking out right behind him. And as Mr. Speaks said in his testimony, and there was the police, or there was the law, it wasn't that he went outside of the house because law enforcement was there. He went outside of the house because Rick was leaving. And Rick was leaving, from my client's perspective, to attack or per perhaps assault Angela Tate. The only three people that can testify to what happened are in the living room and the circumstances and the events going to your question, Judge Murphy, are Angela Tate, my client Ronald Speaks, and Rick Dillon. Rick Dillon is nowhere to be found. He was not called as a witness. We don't know what he would say. So the uncontradicted testimony is that my client followed him out. He went out, excuse me, Angela went out because she was being threatened by Mr. Uh, Lewis. However, wasn't, wasn't there evidence that um, Rick's made the phone call from the porch, not from within the house to, the, to call 911? I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. There was, there, there was some evidence, testimony, that he went in for a second. My client went back in the house for a minute. Frankly, and I've looked at the videotape several times, I didn't see it. I don't see it. There's just a small portion where they, the camera goes back onto the house. So it's difficult to see. But if we were to concede that he did go back into the house, that is my client, um, we don't know how long he went back into the house. It would have to be for a very short period of time. And you'd have to take into account that it's not likely, or it's, it, there's a question as to whether that happened, because if you look at the videotape, my client's walking out, and I should say limping out, he's disabled, behind Rick. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I think the evidence that he went back into the house is not clear, and, and anticipating that question, I looked again at some of the testimony, and I don't see that there was any testimony, any questioning of my client by the district attorney about that, or by his, his counsel either, frankly. I hope that answers your question, but. It, it, it does. Um, I, I guess my, my follow-up to that is, let, let's assume I think he's, your, your client's justified to come out of the house with a gun, not knowing what's going on outside. But let's say, how is he still justified to be possessing that gun once he either starts interacting with the police or by the time that law enforcement discovers the weapon? This is, this is really, you get right to the heart of the question. And Judge Wood took the position or ruled that once my client walked out of the house and saw the police, the threat had ended. It was no longer an imminent threat, and he no longer had the right to possess the weapon. But looking at 
state and using this court's decision in state versus crooks judge wood found that well he should have surrendered the weapon to the police right there and then fell into the arms of the police as as judge woods put it the problem is this in crooks in swindell in mercer there are time periods much more than a few seconds or a minute and a half where the defendant has the weapon before it's surrendered. And my point here is that a jury should be able to determine whether in his mind, A, the threat had abated, but also whether he was required to relinquish the weapon right then, at that minute. If he relinquishes the weapon that minute, what he's doing is he's incriminating himself. Is the justification defense conditioned on that? Incriminating himself for what? At Felon that, in possession, that. exactly what he was charged with. So the other cases, there was an interval of time between when the threat was over and the police were there, basically? M much greater. Um, so you're saying here there was zero time. If there was a, any time, then maybe there's an interval, but you can't be held, you're arguing that you can't be convicted if you're possessing the weapon and the only the only time period is when there's a threat or when the police are there and you'd be incriminating yourself as long as there's no interval then well, you're, that, you're saying that's what distinguishes this case from those other cases you, you can't be convicted your, your judge Dillon or you maybe you can be convicted but you should get a justification defense let the jury determine whether your possession is justified when you meet all the other elements he clearly meets the element that there was an imminent threat at some point, Judge Wood found that the threat had abated. He clearly meets the element that he did not put himself in a position of danger, uh, as was the case in the recent Swindell case decided by the Supreme Court. There's no question about that. The real question is whether he had a legal alternative to going out in order out of the house in order to protect Angela Tate. He didn't. No one else was there. He couldn't call his mom or stepfather, they're upstairs asleep. So the question, the way Judge Wood looked at it is, reading Crooks, he had the, he had the obligation to hand over the gun right there. But I think the reading of Crooks, if you look at the facts in these cases, there's a substantial amount of time involved. I believe it was in Crooks that the defendant who was a felon in possession went over to one house he wasn't going to go speak with his father or give it to his father because his father was being questioned by the police. Or for whatever reason, he had plenty of time to relinquish the weapon. As you suggest, my client didn't have any time to relinquish the weapon unless, as Judge Wood said, he falls into the hands of the police. And I'm not sure, I don't believe the court has addressed it, but I don't think that's a requirement. It might be that you could argue to the jury if you're the prosecutor that that would be reasonable, that the, um, that the threat has abated. But central issue, the central point I want to make is this is a jury question, which Judge Wood removed from the jury because my client has met the, the Mercer test. Even if we agreed with you on, on one, that is so close to this threat, when I'm looking at the language of three, factor three in Mercer, the defendant had no reasonable legal alternative to violating the law. Isn't turning it 
over to law enforcement at that stage, whether it falls under factor one in, in Crooks or not, doesn't it fall that he violated three, that there was a reasonable legal alternative? And it's not, is it the best? The Supreme Court says no reasonable legal alternative. Well, I, I think there are two, two part. Your question really raises two questions. Now, the, the first is, is there no reasonable legal alternative to him either, even picking up the gun and going outside? And my response to that is, there's no legal reasonable alternative that feels there's an imminent threat to Angela, and he has to protect her because it's, there's no, everyone's asleep. He's the only one there. And because he has some disability, it's also reasonable for him to take a gun because he's not going to be able to fight with Rick. But the, the, the question you ask is, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Your Honor, did he have a reasonable legal alternative when he went outside? Not when he went outside, but while he's outside and while he's there with, with when he encountered police, engaging with law enforcement. When he encountered the police? Yes. Um, well, I think that's the jury question. Would it be reasonable for him to do that? That, I think that's what, why it's a jury question in this case, because he has to incriminate himself. The, the cases, as I read it, Your Honor, frankly, and I've cited United States versus Ricks out of the Fourth Circuit, which deals with this question. And it says there's not a requirement under the justification defense, there's not an absolute requirement that the gun be relinquished to the police. Well, my client at that point had the his options were twofold. He's going to relinquish to the police and incriminate himself. Or he's going to relinquish to Rick, who is the owner of the pistol. And Rick's been the one, according to my client, according to the uncontradicted testimony, um, who is the troublemaker at the house. So I hope that answers your question on the reasonable legal alternative issue. I, Would it not have been a, a reasonable alternative for him to, to say on the porch, I have a weapon, I need to set it down and not do anything else, or just set it down before coming out once he sees blue lights outside? The, his testimony, Your Honor, is that he went outside because Rick went outside. And he saw, the law, he saw in law, law enforcement when he got outside. Not that he went outside because law enforcement was outside. Now, you know, the, the district attorney, if the justification defense were, um, if there were an instruction on justification defense, he certainly could have argued, well, that's not reasonable. You don't have to believe him. You know, this is a crazy story. But my point is this. It is a jury question. So, so, so remind me the facts. So, so he goes outside, the, the law enforcement's there, and he doesn't disclose he has a gun. When was the, when was the gun discovered? Because I'm, I'm trying to remember. The, the In the light is, most favorable to your client. So what, what did he say happened? So what? The, the facts were that he went outside, and law enforcement asked him if he, um, if he had a gun, and he denied that he did. They searched him. They frisked him. And they found him. And they found the gun. But once again, back to your question, Judge Murphy, if I may, without belaboring the point, um, I, I think when you're talking about reasonableness, it's a question for the jury. That, that's my point there. 
So if the court has no other questions, and I think we've uh, traversed the, the field, I hope, on the question of justification, uh, I would move to the second issue, but I'd certainly want to entertain any questions, any additional questions. Your, your argument is basically, even though the, the threat may have abated, he was justified because he, he, because of the Fifth Amendment, his Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself. Well, when he told the officer, when he, when the officer said, "Do you have a gun?" and he said, "No," was there still that threat? He could have said, "Yeah, I do. Here it is." So, I mean, he could have done that. That, that's right. Um, and Judge Wood said, "Well, that's what he needed to do." And my point is, that's a jury argument. And defense could argue to the jury, well, is, he, is it really reasonable for him to give this to the officer at this point? Um, and, you know, that's my Based point. on the fact that the jury could have determined that the threat was still there, or based on the fact that, that he shouldn't require to incriminate himself under the Fifth Amendment? I mean, what, what, I mean how could the jury have gotten there based on, I'm just trying to understand that. The, the jury might find that he should incriminate himself under the Fifth Amendment, or they might find that it's reasonable for him not to. My simple point, I don't think we have to go to the- But the, not because they, not, could they, not because they reasonably could have found that the threat was still alive. It's just purely on the Fifth Amendment. Yeah. They're, they could have found it was reasonable because it, it was reasonable for him not to incriminate himself under the Fifth Amendment. That's right. Okay, I, I just want to understand. Okay, that's fine. I just want to understand. Okay. Right. And, and that's my point there. If there are no other questions about that issue, I'd like to briefly discuss the habitual felon issue. Um, and what happened here, just to, to refresh you, and I, I know you're familiar with the facts, but pre-trial, defense counsel brought before the court and moved to have the habitual felon indictment dismissed because the first charge in the habitual felon indictment uh, was alleged to be a felon, felony, and defense counsel said, no, it's not. And if the court would indulge me just a minute mm -hmm. to walk through part of the record with you, I think I can make the argument um, clear and show you where we're going with that, because I, I think it's important to look at the record here. If you would turn in the record to page five, just to travel through this, this argument. On page five, you see the habitual indictment, the first felony offense is breaking or entering a motor vehicle. 91-37-68, Surrey County. If you go to page 7, this is what was attached to the indictment. You see the ACIS printout from the court showing that Ronald Speaks pled guilty to this felony. You also see, I'll point out to you that around the middle of the page, the last line, it says additional charges, yes. Okay, turn, if you would then, to page 23. Twenty-three, if you're there, has the Department of Correction or the DCI report that was sent over. The first two entries show the offenses of two felonies. 
One being um, breaking or entering a motor vehicle, unquestionably a felony. And the second being felony larceny, two felonies. But look what at the disposition, excuse me, the prison count. He's in prison for misdemeanor breaking and entering. Not breaking and entering or entering a motor vehicle, but misdemeanor breaking and entering. A superior court judge could certainly, uh, under 7A271, which we submitted as supplemental authority, um, could find, could sentence him or take a plea to a misdemeanor of breaking and entering. And I will point out to the court, we also submitted um, that at that time in 1991, the maximum sentence for a misdemeanor was two years. If you turn back now to page 17, you'll see that on the larceny, which is characterized as a felony larceny, when, when Mr. Speaks violated probation, the court entered a judgment revoking probation, not for a felony, but for a misdemeanor. The point being, this misdemeanor is not the one that supports the habitual felon indictment. But I point it out to you because it appears, certainly ambiguous, but it appears that he pled guilty to two misdemeanors, got time on one, probation on the other, which was revoked. Also, I've submitted the current Department of Correction information from their website showing that he was serving time for two misdemeanors in 91 CRS 37. 6068. Here's my point, Your Honors. I don't know, we don't know whether it was a misdemeanor or a felony, mis breaking or entering, whether it was breaking or entering a motor vehicle or he pled guilty to breaking and entering a as a misdemeanor. But once the defendant brought before the court these documents, the breaking or entering a motor vehicle is a felony, but just simple breaking and entering without the... Is breaking and entering can be a misdemeanor. Can be a misdemeanor. Correct. By itself and such. Breaking or entering is, as Judge Wood pointed out, always a felony. Breaking or entering a motor vehicle motor is always vehicle. a felony. Breaking and entering just generically can be a misdemeanor. Can be a misdemeanor, can be a felony. But my point is that what is brought forward here suggests a real ambiguity and a problem. And it's not, it's, it's, you may ask me about the Waycaster case, I don't know, but I, some of that was discussed in the Waycaster case where they used the ACIS report um, as evidence. The difference here, Supreme Court said that can be used to support a habitual felon indictment. But the difference here is that in this case, unlike Waycaster, we're not just attacking the ACIS because it's hearsay or it's not properly authenticated. 
we have concrete evidence that it's, that it's wrong. I, I guess my, my biggest concern with that is, I don't know that you're wrong, but your client entered the plea. Thank you. And waived the, his right to have a jury determine if the state meets their burden beyond a reasonable doubt. He did, Your Honor. But and, and Waycaster, if I'm recalling correctly, was an evidentiary dispute. It was not a, a plea, um, and they were saying that shouldn't that, count as evidence. That, that's um, correct, and, and Judge Davis, I think, pointed out his, his uh, major Justice Davis pointed out in his majority opinion, well, he could have brought this before the jury and let them decide that. Um, the, the difference here, let me address the, the plea. I think I've set forth the difference. If you go to the question of the plea, which we asserted by certiorari, the point is that if indeed we're correct or might be correct on uh, the issue of his having committed a felony or a misdemeanor in 1991, we say it was a misdemeanor. If we're correct on that, then there's no factual basis for a, for a plea. But looking at transcript page 213, there is a factual basis given at the time of the plea. All, the, the, the state recounted basically what's in the indictment with the dates, says what it is, um, says that's the facts, asks the defendant if he wants to be heard on, on any of that. Um, it, that's typically all that's needed for a recitation of, of the facts for a plea. I, think I understand your, your later concern with what happens with the sentencing, but for taking the plea to the habitual felon, I don't see anything that falls short in terms of the, the summary of, of the evidence given by the state. Well, the su summary of the evidence doesn't fall short. It only suffers from one, from one deficiency, and that's it's wrong. But a lot of times, I mean, facts can be wrong, but if the defendant stipulates to them, in a plea agreement, we take them at what they are. I, 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 take, I take that. I understand that, Your Honor. I agree with that. Problem is here, he's not just stipulating to facts. I went into the store, I used a gun. He's stipulating to status, which he has already challenged. And what I'm suggesting to the court is, by whatever vehicle you use, it's my argument is you cannot let a habitual felon uh, conviction stand in the face of the ambiguity regarding a 32-year-old uh, conviction for breaking, or in, breaking and entering. Maybe it's breaking or entering. You can't let it stand based on the fact that the district attorney said, well, that was just a typo. Now, he's placed in a position, Your Honor, um, at the end of the trial where he's got to roll the dice. He's given a good, a, a pretty good um, deal, a pretty good plea. And so I just don't think he's, he's given up his right to um, contest the basis of his status. He's never really admitted to his status might say he has as a result of the plea, but I, I think even there, there's a contest. And, and I'll point this out to you. Can you point me to any case, and, and I'm happy to 
to swing it open, even if you haven't said it before, that we've said if somebody stipulates to facts, they're recited, they're enough to hit the elements, but that can be set aside. Well, I think that the court... I, I just don't re I, recall that at any point that we could do that. Well, I'd ask the court to look at State versus Moncrief. And it is cited in the brief, and it's at 188 App 221. The habitual felon... Um, the habitual felon uh, issue is discussed on 232. I see my time is running out, so I'll just finish by you can asking you to take a look at that. You can answer his questions to have three minutes. If you want to answer his question, that's fine. Okay. Well, I, I just think that case would stand for the proposition that you have a habitual felon plea based upon um, what is supposedly a felony in New Jersey, and it turns out it's not. And you know, I just think that that would be applicable in this case as well. Um, and finally, I'd say this, Your Honor, and I'll reserve the rest of my time, but finally I'd say this. This does not fit neatly into a vehicle that can charge you, 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 a vehicle for the defendant to get relief. There's no question about it. So to the extent you feel it's appropriate for the pursuit of justice, to avoid manifest injustice under Rule 2, I'd ask you to take a look at that issue. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for your argument. We're from the state. Mr. Hammer, you still have three minutes if you want it. See, your answer is quite that's Good afternoon, Your Honor. Um, my name is Mark Sneed. I'm with the Department of Justice, and I'm here on behalf of the state. It is the state's contention that the evidence presented did not meet the threshold for issuing a jury instruction on justification. Additionally, the state contends that there was no error in assuming subject matter jurisdiction of the habitual felon charge. And I know we've gone through facts a little bit um, with Mr. Hammer here, but I just want to go through the state's perspective, and I won't go through um, along rehashing the facts. I'll just kind of talk about them in relation to the, the factors. In regard to issuing a jury instruction for justification, you've got to meet four factors. And the four factors are these, Your Honor. The defendant was, one, the defendant was under unlawful and present imminent and impending threat of death or serious bodily injury. Second, that the defendant did not negligently or recklessly place himself in a situation would be forced to engage in criminal conduct. Third, that the defendant had no reasonable legal alternative to violating the law. And finally, there was a direct and causal relationship between the criminal action and the avoidance of the threatened harm. What's the fourth one? Says one. I'm sorry. There was a direct and causal relationship between the criminal action and the avoidance of the threatened harm. And as Mr. Hammer um, so eloquently spoke, um, the North Carolina Supreme Court in the Mercer case adopted justification as a defense to the charge of possession of a, possession of a firearm by a felon. Um, basically, in accepting the Mercer rationale, 
the North Carolina Supreme Court adopted um, the federal test that had been enunciated in the Delvo case. Um, if you look at both Mercer and Delvo, they limit the justification defense um, a lot. Um, the Delvo court said basically justification defense is only limited to extraordinary circumstances. The Mercer case said something similar in saying that a justification defense to a charge of possession of a firearm by a felon is limited to narrow and extraordinary circumstances. I would contend that we don't have narrow and, narrow and um, extraordinary circumstances in this case. Um, the state would contend that um, the defendant has not met elements one, three, or four. Um, I'll go through the- Narrow the and exceptional circumstances as to possessing the gun coming out of the house or continuing to possess it when he comes up to law enforcement. I, I guess I, I keep seeing these as two kind of different time periods of, of the crime being committed. So I think what Mercer and Delvo are basically trying to say is that there are very few cases when you look at the totality of the circumstances that are gonna rise to the level of um, giving a jury instruction for justification. Um, and I believe that the defendant in his brief has, has mentioned the Swindell case, he's also mentioned the, um, the Mercer case that we just spoke of. Um, and I'll kind of go through that a little bit here, but I want to talk about um, present imminent and impending threat of death or serious bodily injury here. Um, the state would contend that this does not exist in this present case. Um, the reason being, if you look at the evidence that's presented of record, what we see, as Mr. Hammer, Mr. Hammer said earlier, is that you have a commotion that breaks out um, in the house. Miss um, Tate feels like she's not feeling safe, so she leaves the house. Um, Rick is waving a pistol. Um, he's got a wrench there, and he says that he's going to let Miss Tate have it. At that point, Miss Tate leaves. Um, it's kind of hard to say what time frame it is that Rick followed her out. Um, but what we do know is this, which is, which is uncontroverted, I believe. Rick Lewis, or Rick left the gun down um, by his chair um, when he left. So Rick leaves the house unarmed, um, and at that point- Did he have the wrench? He did not have the wrench. There's no, there's no, I don't believe he did. Is there any evidence that he left the wrench in the house? I don't believe that there's any evidence that he- So there was evidence he possessed the wrench, and there's no evidence that he didn't possess it. When it I mean, the jury can infer what they want to, so I have to look at it like most favorable to defendants. So if that's the evidence, I've got to assume that he walked out of the house with a wrench, I guess, but go ahead. I mean, and, okay. and in like most favorable, we have a man going after a woman, correct? That's the threat, um, I suppose. And, and this state has, has recognized with assault on a female that that's not an equal protection violation, that there's some state interest in protecting females from, from assaults by men differently than assaults by women, on, on, correct? Uh, no, I think women should be protected just as much as men. Um, yeah, so but the legislature punishes it more if it's a man going after a woman, correct? Don't we have to take that into account? I don't believe so. I think we're just looking at the, um, just the factors themselves. Are, is there an imminent threat of bodily injury or death to um, either Angela or to the defendant? So what we know is that Angela left. She, went, she goes outside. He um, threatened her and he might have had a wrench walking outside. He might have had a wrench, but we don't know for sure. In the light most favorably defend, most favorable to the defendant, let's assume he did. Okay. Um, so Angela goes outside. Rick goes after, after a certain time frame. We know that Rick left the, um, 
the gun on the floor. So Angela's gone somewhere, and Rick goes outside. I'm sorry, not Rick. Defendant goes outside. He knows that um, Rick has already called 911. So assuming that the police are already on their way. So if we t if we think about it, light most favorable to the defendant. Um, he goes and follows Angela Tate out of the door quickly within seconds. Um, what the evidence shows is, is as soon as he got outside, he saw the police were there. Um, so at that point, we know that he doesn't know where Angela is. Angela is in her car, is the, uh, what the evidence shows. Um, but he knows at the point that he steps out of his um, out of his house, the police are there. Let them handle it. Um, and I believe we had testimony from the officer that actually showed up. He was already talking to Angela um, in her car, and I believe that he was somebody else was talking to Rick as well. So there's no threat of any imminent or bodily imminent threat of bodily harm or death to anybody at that point. At that point, the state would contend that there's no reason for the defendant to have a gun. And I know Justice Judge Murphy, you asked questions about when is it. Um, when did the threat abate? Um, I would say the threat is abated at that point. Um, did the defendant need to have a gun at that point once the police are there and the, the scene is secure? He sees that Angela's secure. He's talking to Rick over here. There's no danger to anybody. Um, Angela's safe. Rick is over here. Um, there's nobody else in the house. And I know that light most favorable to the defendant. Um, he talked about the body cams and all that other stuff, but that doesn't mean that you can ignore the evidence put forward by the state. Um, now, Rick was not at this point when he's approaching the officers. Rick was not restrained in any way, correct? Not that I'm aware of, Your Honor. And until the officers go back to defendant, there's no officers in between Rick and defendant, correct? Not that I'm aware of, Your Honor. Um, and so the police are there. Angela's secure. Rick is somewhere talking to the police. Defendant's inside. Um, the officer that came to the scene, um, he actually said that he saw the defendant come out of the house. He went back inside the house, stayed there for like a minute or two, and came back outside. That's the point at which we talk, which we see the interaction between the defendant and the police. Um, I would argue, if you're looking again at another um, another factor, is there a reasonable alternative to breaking the law? Um, he's a felon. He's aware that he's a felon. He knows he's not supposed to have firearm because he's already been convicted of this once. Um, once he goes back inside, he has the option of leaving the firearm on the floor, going to put it somewhere else. Um, but there's no reason for him to have that. Um, and I know we had the discussion as to whether he needs to self-incriminate, whether he needs to um, turn over the gun to the police. And I don't believe the state believes or is taking the position that um, the defendant would have needed to incriminate himself by turning over the gun. Um, but I think if we are looking... Was there any argument at trial that exercising that as an alternative would violate defendant's constitutional right? No, I don't believe so, Your Honor. Not that I recall. Um, but if we're talking about just alternatives to violating the law, I think it's a big mitigating factor if he says that, um, look, I felt threatened. Um, I'm going to give you this gun. This is why I had the gun. However, if you listen to the testimony of the officer, the officer tells us there was no testimony or he never said that he felt afraid for his life or afraid for anybody else's life. Basically, the only time he owned up to it was after um, the officer noticed that um, there was a bulge in his pocket and he turned it over at that point. At that point, he said that um, the gun belonged to his mother and then um, he eventually owned up saying that the gun belonged to him. But wouldn't that aspect, a 
expect more the weight for the jury to consider after having an instruction of whether he actually had these these beliefs whether that's a reasonable alternative i guess i'm struggling with his lack of admitting to the gun and not being honest with law enforcement to begin with how that factors into the availability of the instruction and defendant meeting his low burden of production um well your honor i'll i'll answer your question like this i don't believe it ever should have gotten to the jury and looking at the standards enunciated the very high standards by mercer and delvo these only go to extraordinary cases um the trial judge has a gatekeeper function and if anything goes to the jury i think that there's a very high likelihood that there's going to be a confusion of the issues here because in the jury sorting through issues that may or may not meet the threshold i believe that a lot of deference has to be given to the trial court's decision well the problem is he so the jury was basically instructed if you find this guy is a felon and that he possessed a gun you must find him guilty that's basically the instruction and he basically admitted i'm a felon well i don't i guess he admitted i'm a felon and i had the gun so he basically admitted to all the elements of the crime so i mean i don't know if the jury had any choice but to convict him because they were instructed i mean he admitted to it and so that that's i'm just trying to understand so i mean i don't know what choice the jury had so that that kind of it might have confused the issue but i mean he was you know he was i mean he was caught dead to right at that point i mean i don't know what the jury could have done um but so i'm just trying to i'm just trying to get my mind around the whole justification issue because that that was his defense the defense was wasn't it wasn't me right that wasn't a gun or whatever he's he admitted to it right and justification is the only defense to that's the only thing he had and so once he lost that then you know i don't know what the jury could have done um if they were going to listen and do what the judge told them to do follow the instructions so um so he got no instruction on that. So, uh, so tell me. Okay, so you said what the officer testified to. What, what the light most favorable, try to stay the light most favorable defendant. What did the defendant say happened? Do you agree with Mr. Hammer? The defendant walked outside. The cop asked, the cop asked him, "Do you have a gun?" He said no, and then noticed the bulge. Did he turn it over, or did they pat him down? I don't, so, let me see if I can clarify that part of it. Yeah, I'm trying, so, I'm trying to understand what. In the light most favorable defendant. Sure, and I believe that this is uncontroverted. I think even Mr. Hammer will agree with me in this recitation of the facts. What happened was, defendant went outside. Um, the officer approaches defendant, and the officer already knows that the dispatcher's already told him that somebody has a gun here. As a matter of fact, um, I believe in plaintiff's brief or defendant's brief, it says basically that. Um, the man who I'm afraid of is, has a gun on his hip. That's Rick calling to the dispatcher. Dispatcher gets this issue, gets this information to the officer. So the officer approaches the defendant. He asks the defendant, do you have a gun? Um, defendant, I believe, first says no and declines to um, consent to a search. And so at that point, the officer looks at the defendant. He's looking at him just for safety's sake. And he sees what he believes is a bulge in his, in his back pocket. So at that point, he does a Terry Frisk um, for his own safety. He pats him down, and that's when he found the gun. Okay, so the guy didn't volunteer. He didn't. The defendant didn't voluntarily turn it over, but he, he found no, it. Okay. No, sir. Um, he found it as a safety search. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so, looking at that, I would say that there is no imminent threat because I believe that once that the gun left, um, uh, the gun stayed with um, in the house. Rick left. I believe that there's no imminent threat to anybody. Once he leaves the house, he sees the police basically have control of the scene. 
there is no imminent threat to anybody. So the first factor fails. Um, I believe if the first factor fails, then the fourth factor fails as well. Basically, you've got to have a causal connection to possessing the gun and the, um, the behavior that's meant to be avoided. Um, and so because there was no imminent threat, there's no reason for him to have the gun. Um, and I just want to walk you through two cases, um, the facts of Mercer and the facts of Swindell, um, which actually show Before you get into that, I just want to clarify just a couple of your comments before with Judge Dillon. You were talking about deference with the trial court. You talked a little bit about confusion of issues. I just want to be clear. There's nothing in our standard review that's anything other than the NOVA of this issue, correct? It's a de novo review if we're looking at issues of law. That is correct, Your Honor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. So, and looking at the Mercer case and looking at Swindell, in Mercer, you basically have two people who are coming back to his house, the defendant's house, um, and there's a mob there basically waiting for him. Um, they're blocking the entrance to his house, and there's, there are guns. Um, the defendant and Mercer did not have a gun and his cousin did have a gun. He's listening to all these people around him. People are saying, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And he hears clicks in the crowd, meaning that somebody there is armed. So the defendant's cousin in Mercer, he's not able to get the gun to fire. So the gun is like misfiring or it's not working properly. So at that point, that's when the defendant took the gun from his cousin and he got the justification defense because you had the extraordinary circumstances that are talked about in Mercer and Delville. In Swindell, what you have is basically a defendant who basically falls on his buttocks. Um, he knows that there are gang members who are present. He's surrounded by a number of people. Um, again, he hears people saying, pop him, pop him, pop him, which he, inter which he interprets as being somebody shoot him. So there was a gun laying on the grounds. Um, he picked up the gun at that point. He got the justification of instruction. Um, Swindell, I believe, was a murder case as well. So um, he had the possession of a firearm by a felon as well as a murder case as well. And then also dealt with self-defense issues which we don't need to get into here. So what I'm saying is given that both courts have said it's extraordinary circumstances, it's the state's contention that this case does not rise to the level of the extraordinary circumstances presented in either Mercer or um, Swindell. Are you saying from the very outset when he grabbed the gun from the house or, or from the time the cop was there? From the time the cop was there, I okay, believe so Okay, so you're not really arguing that, because in this case, this Rich, whatever the guy's name was, said, I'm going to get her, and walks outside with a wrench, and so there's an imminent threat, perhaps. Perhaps. Um, perhaps. But then when the cop gets there's what you're saying, so. That's correct, Your Honor. It turns on whether or not, it seems like this, the issue turns on whether or not he's justified to invoke his Fifth Amendment right to, but to do it in a way that would cause him to break the law. He's breaking. The, he's having to break the law to invoke his Fifth Amendment right. Can you do that? Not to. Not that you're incriminating yourself. On me. Well, I can't think about that. Okay. Yeah, and I don't believe it's the state's contention to say that he needs to violate his Fifth Amendment right in order to turn over the gun. Um, even if he doesn't turn over the gun to the police officer, he still had another alternative: leaving the gun inside the um, house, or um, he never even told the officer that. Look, I felt that I was in danger. Um, this is why I have this gun. If he does that, I don't think that he's really incriminated. It's a self-defense issue at that point, um, which goes to the first element that he felt that there was a, um, an imminent threat of death or bodily injury, which there was none here when we look at the, 
which we would contend. I think that's my presentation on the first issue. I'm happy to answer any other questions you have before I get into the second issue. I might hear what you have to say about the second issue. Okay. On the second issue, why does the printout from the I mean, it's 1991, I guess, but why does the printout there, the two printouts disagree? I just don't, I mean, there's no way we can tell what he really was convicted of, what the judgment was. I mean, there's no form, it's just what the computer readout says. There's no. You're right, Your Honor, and I don't know that I have an answer for that question. Um, I believe that there was definitely some sort of a, um, a clerical error here. Um, but what I look at is the offenses that were, that were committed, and I think there was even some discussion here on the record that the trial judge discussed. Um, it's basically charged with breaking and entering a motor vehicle and taking more than $400. Um, if you look at my brief in the appendix, I've attached two, um, two statutes there, which show that at the time, if you break and enter a vehicle and you take more than $400, it's a felony. Um, as the trial judge said, he was well aware of the statute. And he said, look, if this is what you did, then that's a felony. He also said that you've also been sentenced in the presumptive range for a felony. And so that's why he believed that it was a felony. Um, then you go two years later, two years after um, he's charged with this, you have the revocation, um, which I think is probably where you have the line that starts, you know, kind of, you Lord. have a clerical error here and it just carries and carries on until anybody corrects it. And to this date, it doesn't look like it's been done. Um, but we know that. He was charged with a felony, I believe convicted of the felony, um, and he, um, he was sentenced accordingly. So if you look at just the whole record, it appears as though breaking and entering, taking more than $400, that's a felony. He's sentenced in the presumptive range, um, which indicates that it's a felony. Um, and also, I'd like to talk about kind of the, the plea issue as well, um, but I'm happy to answer any questions you have on that. Let me just ask you a couple questions, just going yes, from my memory. Um, on the ACES report and everything there. Isn't it possible that he was convicted of a felony, he was also convicted under the same file number of a misdemeanor um, in, under a separate count, and the trial court judge, when probation came up, decided just to revoke him on the misdemeanor? I believe that is possible, yeah. And that what could explain at least the jail records, potentially? That's not that this is necessarily mutually exclusive, correct? It's, it's an oddity and obviously, you know, maybe potentially something for the jury. And if I'm looking at it, we, we don't have copies of the indictments, correct, either? Of the indictments from 1991? From the 91 CRS 3768 file. I don't believe we do, Your Honor. All, all we have is the probation revocation judgment. That's correct. In the file. That's correct. Um, so it's not definitively wrong. It's possibly wrong, but th there are other explanations. Now, my understanding of the ACES reports is that they typically include a separate page for the misdemeanor conviction. Is there anything that would have 
kept that from being the case for these 91 convictions if there was a misdemeanor conviction in addition to the felony? Not that I'm aware of, Your Honor. And was the entirety of his record um, or his entire ACES report submitted to the trial court at sentencing? Do we I don't recall, and I don't want to give you a wrong answer on that, Your Honor, but I, I don't recall. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Sure, sure. Um, and Judge Murphy, you talked about kind of the voluntariness of the plea deal. Um, you pointed to the part of the transcript where the trial court actually went through the plea and asked the um, defendant, does he plead to this, does he plead to this, and it was a voluntary acceptance of the plea bargain. Um, so given that it was voluntary, and actually I believe that the trial, the transcript actually says that he wasn't about to sign the, um, the plea until basically I think he knocked off a point um, of the sentencing, so he actually got some sort of a benefit out of this plea deal. So I think it's difficult to look at a defendant who has voluntarily accepted a plea after it's been read to him by the trial court. He's accepted it, he understands it. Um, he's gotten a benefit from the trial court or from the plea and that he's getting less of a sentence. Um, the state gets a benefit in that they don't have to try the, um, the case of possession of a firearm or habitual felon. Um, and so if we look at plea deals, if we start to set aside voluntary plea deals, that's just going to be a big mess um, because anybody could find any reason to set aside a plea deal. Um, the state's going to be less likely to start offering plea deals, and it's just a slippery slope to follow. Um, that's, that's what I would contend there. Um, in addition to basically looking at the charges that he had um, and looking at it and based upon the statute at the time, it was a felony. Um, I believe if it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And let me just make sure I'm clear also, procedurally we have the, the pending PWC here. Um, does the state contend in, in any way that our discretion in granting that PWC is constrained in any way? Or has the legislature given us full discretion to grant that PWC if that's what we choose to do in our discretion? I'm sorry, Your Honor, can you repeat that? Do, do we have full ability from the legislature to allow the petition uh, for writ of certiorari um, to address the habitual felon plea? Or is there anything constraining our exercise of that discretion? Because I don't believe the state filed a response to, to the PWC, correct? Um, I don't recall that. Um, we did, Your Honor. Um, and so to answer your question, I don't believe that there's anything to, um, to restrain you from granting any sort of PWC on this case. I believe that is my presentation. Um, I'm happy to answer any other questions that you might have. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Shammy, you got three minutes. Very briefly, Your Honors, I, I would like to briefly address Judge Murphy's question regarding the, um, the second issue. I think when you look at this, you can find a way to say that, yes, it was a felony, and the, there were, the top charge was a felony, and there was a misdemeanor larceny with it, but you're guessing. And the problem is, in, you say, well, the, um, presumptive sentence for a class, I think it was an HRI felony, was two years. 
but the sentence for a misdemeanor was two years. Um, so I'm tempted to go outside the record and pull the age card, but I, um, I won't. But I believe that if you looked at it, two years was pretty common sentence for a misdemeanor in 1991, especially if you're getting active time. So what's the best evidence to know what he was convicted of? What, I mean, how, how do you make that determination? What's the best court record? Is it that first printout that said he pled guilty to a felony? Well, what would have been the best record is if the defendant, the district attorney, once the question was asked, once it was raised, once we saw there was an ambiguity, came in and either showed that he couldn't find the conviction, that it was impossible, the judgment, excuse me. The indictment doesn't matter. Because, no, I understand that. I understand that. But he could have brought that in. He could have brought in testimony from whoever was the clerk of court or how the ACIS, uh, what the protocols were for the ACIS. In other words, do you go into court, as I believe you do, and you see on the screen what the charges are, and then you print guilty, or do you change it when he pleads to something else? I don't know. You don't either, and that's the problem here. But it's some evidence, that thing that says he pled guilty, it's some evidence, and is that enough for him to stipulate, if he stipulates to it, for the judge to go with it? There's some evidence, but I, I don't think his stipulation, you mean his stipulation by the plea? Yeah. I don't think, I think you can't stipulate to a status you don't have. And I think if you look at the, the Moncrie case, there may be some distinctions, but I think it's along the same lines. In other words, they raised the question early on, um, you know, about the habitual felon status, and then he pled. That's my recollection, at least. Um, so I, I urge the court to take a so look at that. So he can't stipulate to it. So let's say he says nothing, and, the, and he doesn't make an argument one way or the other, but the only evidence before the court are those computer printouts. Is it up to the judge to make the determination? No, I, I, think it, I think if he doesn't challenge it, the, the computer printout may have some presumption uh, of validity itself if it's not challenged. But the problem here is once it's challenged, the state has some burden to come back and say, wait a second, let me show you why this is right. But by stipulating and entering the plea, doesn't he waive putting the state to that burden of, of proving beyond a reasonable doubt? That, that, that's where my, because if the indictment didn't have any attachments, it's perfectly fine on its face, correct? You don't have to attach the judgments, you just have no, to. No, no, the, the indictment may be facially valid. He's not attacking the facial validity of the indictment. And if these exhibits and documents had never come about, he just stipulated straight up um, without this pretrial hearing, without the later stuff at sentencing, then it's fine as well. That, that's Correct. right. In fact, in the case of, I think it's State versus McGee, I'm not sure if we cited it, but they distinguish it in the Moncrie case. And in McGee, that's essentially what happened. They're what, you know, he basically waived the, the issue. But here, you know, he, he posited the issue from the outset. Um, and even at the plea hearing, um, when his criminal worksheet was presented to the court, it said Miss felony larceny on that second count, as it were. It said, no, no, it's misdemeanor larceny. The court was willing to say, okay, I'll accept that. 
you know, I'll bend it for that. But is the proper remedy that you're suggesting, and I know we're, we're way over time here, but isn't this an IAC issue of having your client plea to something that there's not evidence and facts to support? And, you know, obviously we don't have any IAC allegations here unless I, I've missed that in here. That isn't that the only vehicle that, that this gentleman may have? No, I don't think it's the only vehicle. I think it arguably could be an IAC issue, but you could also argue that reasonable counsel is going to advise his client to take a plea which is favorable. Well, somebody can't advise their client to answer a question untruthfully, and if it was to answer the question of is, were you convicted of this felony on this date, and to answer that yes, when you weren't convicted of that, then, you know, that's a, that's a huge ethical violation. It, it could be, but I, I just, I have a problem getting to the IAC issue. Um, you know, if he's stipulating, that's one thing. He may be stipulating for a reason. It's almost like an offered stipulation. Um, so I, I think that the better vehicle is either, um, hopefully, this court's disposition uh, in the alternative, it invites a motion for appropriate relief um, on the question of the, um, the validity of the 91 CRS charge. But I hope this court can, can resolve that. Of course, if you, if you rule as we ask you to do on issue one, don't you don't have to address this thorny issue. Thank you very much for your Thank time you. and your patience. Thank you, Thank you, gentlemen, for your arguments. We'll take it under advisement. And y'all okay? Don't need a break or anything? Y'all okay? I'm good to go. Yeah. Oh. Give me a few minutes and invite counsel for the second argument to come on up.